My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello and welcome everybody. You're listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast, where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history, one story at a time. I'm your host, Cami Ahrens, and this month we are taking a look at historic fishing practices. It's July and most folks here are out and about on the lakes or one of our many waterways. People here love to fly fish, but there's also other types of fishing to be done in the still waters. But you know, we often talk about fishing today and going out and learning how to fly fish and all of that, but not a lot of people are having conversations about how people used to fish. And fishing used to be an important part of Appalachian foodways, but also an important pastime. I mean, most of us, I think, can remember a story from fishing with a, a relative, whether it be a father, grandfather, aunt, uncle, and um, coming back and, and sharing in that moment and maybe in that meal if you uh, kept the fish that you caught. And certainly Appalachia is really unique for its um, waterways. We're really close to the Little Tennessee, which is just rich in biodiversity. And there are um, local nonprofits who specifically focus on conserving and reducing pollution, which helps support our fish species. We're also in a temperate rainforest here in Raven County. Most years we receive over 100 inches of rain, which, um, you know, all of that runoff has to go somewhere. So you'll often see this time of year with regular storms coming through, lots of springs popping up in places where you may not have seen them before. And certainly all of that is going back into our rivers and supporting and sustaining the water systems in this region. Fishing was also an important part of camping here, just like it is today. Even though people lived in more remote areas in the mountains, it was not uncommon for them to go on overnight trips and, you know, without Yeti coolers or whatever your preferred method of carrying food is, you know, they would have to forage or catch their dinners while they were out camping. And so fishing was an important part of those um, trips as well, which again, led to great memories and many, many great stories. So as we'll learn in this podcast today, there were a lot of different ways that people fished. Um, people would fish with fly fishing, or they might use a hook, line, and sinker. Um, people really used whatever they had on hand, and this sticks pretty closely to the tradition of other things, other crafts and practices that we see in Appalachia. Some people remember using leftover thread for their fishing line, or in some cases, they might use a pin for the hook or even shotgun shells for their weights. So it was really whatever was left over on and on hand. Um, the canes were often made out of river cane. Um, this is not bamboo. A lot of people will see it and think that it's bamboo, but river cane is a native species here in Appalachia. There are three types of cane. One of them, the most probably most recognizable and prolific, grows along creeks um, and rivers here in the region. And for a long time, um, their population was rapidly reducing, but again, a lot of conservation efforts dedicated to protect, protecting the ecosystems around these waterways um, have built up those populations of river cane again. So you can go and see them. Um, one of the best places to see it is at Mainspring Conservation Trust. They're 
public property in Tessenty. It's called Tessenty Bottomland Preserve. You can walk a short path there and see just remarkable stands of river cane. So river cane was a really important resource for indigenous peoples, but then again later for the settlers who learned how to fish in the region. So you could easily make a cane pole um, at various lengths, depending on how large a piece of cane you cut down or um, you know what your use for it was going to be. And then you would simply affix your, your line to that and, and use it as your fishing pole. So during this podcast, we're going to listen to a couple of different fishermen and women who share stories of their experiences fishing here in the mountains, what they use to fish, where they would fish, but also how things have changed. So in the Fox Bar Archives, one of our main goals is to track change over time here in Appalachia. Um, and this is no different. So you'll hear them talk about the changes that happened once the rivers were dammed and the lakes were created. And then you'll also hear them talk about changes in the native fish populations once stocked fish were introduced. And you can certainly get online and search more about stocked fish and learn more about the species that are mentioned in this podcast. And we'll definitely link a lot of that information for you on our website. So without further ado, I'm going to leave this to you. First up, we have Buck Carver. My name is Kim Welch, and today is November the 26th, 1980, and I'm interviewing Buck Carver on fishing. Well, the class is doing a, a magazine on fishing, and... Yeah, the whole magazine's gonna be on fishing. How to clean them, how to, the favorite fishing holes, uh, what's all that stuff? Uh, fishing tales. Uh, stories about fishing, or big tales about fishing, um, what kind of fish? Yeah, what kind of fish there are up here and how to catch them. We're going to talk, to, see if some people show us how to tie flies. I never did learn to tie flies. You know anybody that does? <clears throat> Bill Bingham and Gordon Jones did tie but they're both dead now. And, I, and Charlie Battles tied some. I had some that Charlie Battles tied some. You use flies instead of corn or anything. Uh, on our native trout, but there's a lot of sport in it, and there's a lot of it, it, it's 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 a skill that you've got to develop yourself. Nobody can't develop it for you. You can watch other people, and you can learn a heck of a lot by watching. I learned more, I guess, by watching Kelly Ritchie. Who? Kelly Ritchie. Yeah, I remember him. He used to be a heck of a fisherman around here. And I learned more by watching him and Albert Brown, I guess, as well. I went with Greenhopper, Bill Lamb, Old Man Raul Ledford, and a lot of them would go on big camping trips. And I learned a lot from all of them. And I guess there's some of them that I learned a lot too. But uh, when you go out there with your fly hooks, go to a hole that you know has got got the house and fish in it. How do you know? Well, you can tell by the size of the hole that it's got to have some in it. And you stand there and you try out hooks till you find one that they'll take. They might take the first thing you offer them. And you may offer them every darn thing you've got in your book and they still won't take it. And they change their mind overnight. I know I lived over there on Darnell Creek and I'd, I'd go out there sometime, I'd be a hoeing corn. The land was rocky, 
small rock, turn over a rock and be a cricket and sure, grab that darn cricket and get out with a backer can, take the tobacco out of it and catch me a handful of crickets and stick down that dang can and go out and get my full bowl of fishing. And I tried just about every darn thing I had and I couldn't get them dang fish to hit nothing. I think, well, I, I guess I had 40 or 50, maybe 60 different colors, a lot of them anyhow. I put on that blade old governor. <laughs> put the darn thing on by an head and I went to lifting them like nobody's business. Caught three or four, seven, eight or nine inches long, something like that, not big fish at all. But I went up about the third hole after I put that governor on. Thick log across the hole was deep in there. And I threw that hook above the Log had no weights on it, no sharpener less than sinking. And so that hook just above that log and I seen this chop come up and get him. It looked like about 12, 15 inches long. And I just handed it to him. It stood on his nose right down to the bottom of that hole he went with. Well, I let it lay in there for what seemed to me like an eternity, but I guess it was a half a minute to a minute. And I decided, well, got start this fight sometime or another, just well starting around any time, and I flipped a little too hard, but I pulled ease on, of course he had that hook swallowed, no telling how far down his stomach it was. And I might could have played him down, but on that weakened line, I don't think so, I gave a little flip, I didn't turn that fish over, broke, snapped my hook off, you know. Well, shoot, I went to Dillard that evening. No use in trying nothing else, I done tried everything else I had, and I wouldn't hit it, and I just Hold out and put more on the house, more on the dealer. One of the deals sold fly hooks at that time at the drugstore. And I bought me three or four governors from home. Went back up that same creek and in some of the same holes the very next day, by the way, and they wouldn't pay a governor more, no more attention than they'd go to Gray B the next day. Hmm. When the water in that glass rises up in the neck of that bottle, get your hooks and go, you'll get fetched. It won't always do it, huh? It won't do it all the time, huh? No, it won't. Just certain time of the moon, it'll do that, and I forgot what time it is. Certain time of the moon. So you got a glass? Just a table glass. And then you fill it up with water. Fill it plumb full of water. Plumb up. Then take this bottle. Like a Coca-Cola bottle. Like a Coca-Cola bottle, and it's got to be big enough to sit down in the top of that glass, and the water will come out around it. Oh, all right. It's not going to sit way down. It's going to sit at the top of it. it. The neck can go plumb to the bottom of the glass or almost to the bottom of it. Just so the shoulder of it seals the top of the glass okay. off. Yeah. At a certain time of the moon, that, that water will rise up. And uh, <clears throat> you watch the darn thing, and when it comes up in the neck of that bottle above the shoulder of your glass, the top of your glass, Get your equipment and go, you'll get fishing. Another thing, when the signs are in the heart, they'll bite like the devil. I always thought the signs had to be in the stomach, but they don't. Huh. And they'll bleed. You can go fishing and catch a string of them, and every one you catch, the blood will just pour down that fish's side. And uh, I know one Sunday, we lived over at Byron Kelly's place, and I went up on Kelly's Creek fishing. 
They were way over in, in July, and the little old creek had done been fixed to death, and I never thought about getting over three or four. It been skinned, but I caught 21 of the darn things, and some of them pretty nice trout, too, by the way. There wasn't none of them manners as Jim Teague was. But I noticed them fish every day when I catch, he'd uh, bleed like a stuck hog. Hmm. And when I come home with the thing I told the old lady, I said, I'll bet you five dollars again a donut. I said, get the almanac, I want to find out. I said, I'll bet you five dollars again a donut that the signs is in the heart. She got the almanac and showed up. That's right where they was. Now I'm speaking of native trout. During these stock things, I don't know enough about them. Only I know they ain't fit teammates, you go to trouble to catch them. If they could just stay out there long enough to eat some natural food. You see, they're grown so fast on that ground up beef and horse liver and ground up horse meat and so forth. They're grown so fast on that, they're just as tender as they can be. One that's laid and hatched and raised in the, these streams and lived off of native food all of his life, even if he ain't longer than that, it's took him maybe a couple of years to get that long. But he won't rot in five minutes after you catch him, if you bruise him a little bit. And you take these confined things that, that, that turn in these creeks first to take right out the minute you turn them in. If you don't take their intestines out right quick, they ain't either gonna stand much handling. They're, they're so soft and rot. Mm -hmm. Right quick, they're gonna spoil them. But these native specks and rainbows, I've kept them out of water from pretty early in the morning by into the well over the evening and in the summertime at that too, by the way. Hmm. As long as you don't bruise him, he's not gonna hurt much, if any. Once in a while you may have to throw a little fella away when you start taking his intestines out. The ribs will part from the meat up here towards his front fence, mm -hmm. his gills. He's beginning to go bad then when I'm able to do that. That's how you tell, huh? Pardon? That's how you tell if they're going bad and <laughs> you don't eat those. Right, yeah. the river goes part of the meat, they're fixing to go south. And these blame stock things go south in a hurry. And now we'll hear from Melvin Taylor. How long have you been fishing? All your life? Yeah, same time. Big enough to carry a pole. I used to pull my daddy back uh, years ago, back in the 30s. I was six, seven years old. We lived on Burton and Sawmill Camp over there. Back then, they wasn't, I bet, on Burton Lake, then they wasn't 15 houses. There was one or two over here at the head of Tempson and over at Pratt Camp, and that's it. They wasn't no houses, they wasn't nothing. And I used to go with my daddy. I wasn't big enough to do much fishing, and he, I'd tell him if he let me go, I'd carry the fish, and I, we'd go, and I'd come home with more of my bass, Lord, I wasn't it tail them bass right around after two, all I could carry. But they wasn't no houses, man, fish, they had plenty of fish, I'm telling you. Yes, they were. And they wasn't no houses nowhere, just wild country. There was. That was real fishing in those days. What kind of pole did you use? Back then had cane poles. Why they, people had a lot of money had a real rod, but the <laughs> Pole. It's a cane pole, that's what my daddy used. Could you find them around here? Oh yeah, on the creek banks, yeah. Dad called a bath pole, that's the big thing I ever remember him saying, come out, call out a bird late in that time. On a cane pole, weighed eight pounds high. Boy, they looked, had him up there in the store in a tea and tub, boy, he was long. 
And uh, boy, everybody come to see that thing. You know, Paul caught him on a cane pole. Weighed eight pound hang. I had to walk on a cane pole. That's the biggest night I ever heard of. Wasn't there a special way to, well, what kind of line did you use on the cane? I just, any kind of line. Just tied on in a cane pole. Put a cork on it. Use a piece for bath. Put a cork on well, the fish, do they stock? Do they stock the lakes every once in a while? No. Well, they yeah, they stock them. Uh, they stock those white bass, those big, those big striper bass, you know. And then they just breed in there yeah. year after year, and that. And they stock well, Burton and all these lakes got trout in, browns and rainbows. They can be there too. They've been one. I saw one come out of seed. I saw this one thought I had it up there at town. That thing's still alive. He weighed uh, 13 pounds. I've seen him weigh him up there, Brown. They caught a brown out of Lake Raven and weighed 14 pounds. And I've seen Rainbow to come out of seed weighed uh, 8, 9 pounds. I saw one that had a frozen black ice, black ice up there weighed 8 pounds high. Come out of seed, baby. They, they stopped it in uh, all the lakes. And these lakes, they good. I mean, they, they some big ones. They some good trout in there. You catch them along in front of here, you catch good many of them. I have caught the lemon over out of the lake. Do you have a special place you like to fish? Lake Raven is the best brim fishing lake in Raven County. If you want to get catch brim, Lake Raven, they got them. They stay down there. That's the best fish, uh, brim fishing lake in. Well, this is about as good as it could. This excerpt comes from an interview with Florence Brooks. Um, she's the only female featured in this podcast, but certainly not the only female fisher person. Um, so she'll share some stories with you. Her husband Lawton was also an avid fisherman. And as far as I know, um, neither of them actually ate fish. <laughs> they just enjoyed the practice of fishing. Today is December 10th, 1980, and Bridget McCurry and Margie Bennett are going to interview Florence Brooks. Okay, when did you start fishing? I fished ever since I was about eight years old. And I started with a straight fin and a flower sack thread line. Uh -huh. Flower sack what? Thread. We used to get flower sacks in your hand. Cloth sacks. Uh -huh. Took that thread and tied a straight pin on it, hooked it, and put me a nail on it for the same. We youngins and we'd lose your hook and give a straight pin. That's the way we used to catch fish. Uh, what did you use for bait? Red worms. Red worms? But I used corn lambo mm -hmm. for traps. How do you, like, do you uh, just use it right off the top or how do you use corn? No, I buy corn out of the store. Cans. Canned corn. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, whole grain, whole crumbs. Mm -hmm. Where do you, do you fish right around here? Right around here, we go all over Do you have any special fishing places that you like to fish at? No, just anywhere I can get a hook in the water. No. Um, do you like to fish at, like at a certain time of the day, like when you wake up or real early or, or like just Fort Wayne or anything? Just any time I can get there. Huh? <laughs> you fish a lot? Early and later. When's the I... best time to catch them? Well, you never know where you go. I go once in a while. Are there big fish up there? Well, I don't know. You can't fish unless you buy permit and have to buy your trout stamp. Mm -hmm. And it's too expensive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'd really like to go back, go back down that river fishing. Yeah. But without a doubt, they pour stock fish in there now. Yeah. 
Tell me what the difference is in stock fish and, and native fish. Well, a native fish has got a pretty color and their meat's firmer. The meat's firmer? Yes. Now, sometimes you'll catch these stock fish and they'll turn white spotty before you get home. Really. Well, the native fish won't. And then it turns white spotted, I throw it away. I think it's a food they feed. Yeah. And native fish just eat what they can catch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they, they they probably are tougher, I mean, in exercising. Yeah, they are. Stronger. They are. Firmer meat and all, and they just stay the same. Mm -hmm. The stockfish eat the, um, do they throw stuff into the stockfish like those? Yeah, they feeds? use them in these big vats, you know, and they have to feed them. They feed them chicken feed. They're a little better since it went to feed the chicken feed. I used to, they feed them over there. And that's the one that turns white spotted. Mm -hmm. Well, take it easy. Okay. Y'all come up. Thank you. Bye-bye. You come back now. Here we have Menyard Connard. Eighty. this is Jeff Giles and Vance Waller and Harvey Connard. We're interviewing Menyard Connard on fishing. Uh, where are your favorite places to fish at? I just most anywhere. Uh, what kind of fish do you like to catch? I like to catch trout next to many of When did you start fishing? I started fishing in a big enough cat fishing pole. <laughs> I take Max out. To, I live right next to the river. In the, River coming along, and get real cold, and that's about your side. The water run in shallow, there, and it just run out there in the shallow. And these old suckers, when <coughs> river would freeze over, and these old suckers come out under that ice to get a little sun. I'd take an old pool action on. You know what a pool action is, don't you? It's got a one bit on it, you know, and a hammer on the other. Stick up on them, pow, knock the ice through and hit them in the head and kill them. Knock the plug of the ice down through them. I guess you get you a big rock and break that ice through on you and kill them. What's the biggest fish, I mean, what's the best fish, eating fish that you ever ate? I think speckled trout is. Yeah. They don't go very big. They just work very, they live right on the upper end of the upper stream. You ever seen any, boy? I've heard of them. I've seen them. Keener's Creek over here's got them. And Darnus Creek's got them on the head. And I don't know if another. Is there another around here, boy? got some speckled trout? How do you clean a speckled trout? Well, you just jerk the, take the knife and spin open and jerk the guts out of him. He's ready to eat. You don't have to scrape him, you know, he's in that good fresh water. And now we'll listen to Willie Underwood. This is Kim Hamilton interviewing Willie Underwood. Today's November the 29th, 1980. We're down at his house on Chetro Road. When did they start having lakes? Well, I guess I was uh, seven or eight years old when they built up. Well, uh, they built, everything's been built since I was 10 years old. Burton was built after World War II, which ended in 1918. They started it in World War II. 
post-hour lakes were made in the late teens and in the 20s. And they were stocked. And uh, that's where the fishing fad for this country come in. Well, thank you all so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I hope it's inspired you to get out and go fishing. Make sure to take somebody with you. Uh, so that you can prove to someone that you did actually catch a large fish and wish you best of luck enjoying the lakes and the rivers this beautiful summer season. If you want to learn more about fishing, as you might have heard in this podcast, the students interviewing these folks mentioned that they were writing an entire magazine issue on fishing. And that is true. It was published in the 1980s. It is out of print, but you can contact the museum for more information and we can direct you to the correct Foxfire books or other places where you might be able to find some of these interviews. And as always, if you love Foxfire, please share, like, subscribe, all of those things that help us bring our content to new audiences. Um, Sit down and share with a friend, subscribe, leave us a review, let us know how we're doing. We definitely want to hear from you guys. And just a reminder that Foxfire is a nonprofit. We bring this podcast to you free as part of our mission to preserve and promote Southern Appalachian history and culture. If you'd like to learn more about our work in our community and with local students, please visit our website at www.foxfire.org and consider becoming a member. A digital membership will get you access to a digital archive of back issues of the magazine, as well as special content throughout the year and a special YouTube playlist straight from our archives. If a digital membership's not for you, consider visiting us in person with a regular membership or just simply donate to us to support our program. We appreciate all of you and look forward to talking to you next time. Y'all take care. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>